Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. This morning we're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. At least that's where the story begins. Uh, We're going to cover some territory this morning. I'm going to try to do it quickly, but I want to tie uh, two issues in together and uh, and see where the Lord will take us. These are are issues that I know that I have felt. I've been as honest uh, as I know how to be over the course of the last year as we're trying to figure out and I've shared with you different frustrations and uh, and issues as I wrestle with truths and um, you know restrictions and uh, you know lots of um, you know I, I, um, I, I don't feel I mean obviously I'm elevated here but as your pastor I don't feel elevated I feel like just another brother or you know, in the body of Christ that might have different giftings and responsibilities, but uh, I'm human too, right? So, I mean, we're trying to figure, figure things out and, and watch people as they're developing really, really good habits in their life and then, you know, a week or two out of those habits and before long, you know, things begin to shift and shake in their life and, uh, you know, statistics. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge statistics person and, uh, and I watch and I study and I learn and I read and I process and I look at trends and all those sorts of stuff. And it breaks my heart as a pastor to know that, that many people who were very, very faithful in March may never go back to church again because they've gotten out of habits. And if you ask them, uh, there's lots of reasons why and lots of intentions. But the case, case of point is somewhere between 20 and 30% of people who are faithful to church may never return. Now, I say may because how would we know? We've never actually been through anything quite like this before. I'd like to think that our church is quite optimistic. Uh, I don't have many opportunities to say things like this other than a Sunday morning. And honestly, most of the time, it doesn't seem very appropriate. But I want to encourage uh, you know, if, if maybe going to church has become something that is just out of the habit, I want to encourage you. We, we need one another. Let, make us figure out logistics. Uh, that'd be a great problem for us to figure out next. Uh, if you are still concerned or vulnerable or fear of exposure or those sorts of things, man, we understand that completely. That's why we keep doing what we do. Uh, but I long for the day that we can be back together face-to-face, encouraging each other, sharing life together, and, um, and, and being the body together without any of those restrictions. So I don't want us to lose heart. I don't want us to grow weary in that. And I'll be honest, I'm the first to admit because of my humanity, I have grown incredibly weary and I'm on the precipice of cynical. And that's not a good place for me to be. That's not where I want to be. That's really where this, this, uh, this series, I don't know how long just yet, uh, until I feel better, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this series has come from, has been birthed out of my own frustrations. And over the last couple of weeks and certainly probably a month, I've been talking about this thing in my own life and trying to generate it. And, uh, but the Lord has taught me more than I had expected. 
Uh, and so I wanna just share with you something that the Lord has taught me that I think might be good for all of us to get started in this new year. Because if not one thing changes this year from last, our perspective can. And that's what I wanna challenge us with, is our, is our perspective change. I can tell you that the first church, when they were getting burned at the stake and they were being thrown to the lions, they didn't say, oh good, that was last year. Now that it's a new day, maybe those problems will all go away now. Uh, they didn't have that luxury like we pretend that we do. All right, verse one. Uh, for those of you who love Old Testament history, Oh, this is going to be your favorite sermon ever. For those of you who don't love history, uh, I'll wake you up just before the application, all right? Well, let me give you the, let me give you the background till we get there. Uh, king David, he's not king yet. He is the anointed future king. Israel doesn't know it. So David has been working with King Saul, who was the one that was anointed by God to be the first king of Israel, uh, wasn't doing too well. In fact, was incredibly arrogant, depended on his own humanity way too much. But he found out that David was an excellent musician. And so he brought David on staff and David dwelt with the king. While God gave him a firsthand experience to that, David was a wonderful, wonderful warrior. And he was a, a, a logistics expert. David could figure out things and he walked with the Lord so closely. Now, Saul became to be threatened by David. In fact, all of Israel, because of David's exploits in battle, they begin to say, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very jealous of David and he kept exerting his power and authority over David and proving how popular and powerful he was to all of the Israelite people. Now in this, Saul was told as the king he could not perform the role of the priest. But Saul overrode that, stepped into it, and the Bible says that the Spirit of God left Saul at that very time. And Saul continued to go through all the motions to lead the God's chosen people, but without the Spirit of God. Now, with this lack of restraint, Saul became infuriated with, paranoid by David. And he sought opportunities to kill young David. And so David begins to operate not according to the strength and the power of God, but David resorted to operating in his own power. So David actually leaves Israel secretly, takes some of his best friends, which were hundreds of men, takes them with him and they go into Philistia, in with the Philistines, Israel's sworn enemies. And David begins to navigate a relationship there. That's where we find. So David is running for his life. He creates an alliance with, God's, uh, with Israel's enemies. And, and this is where we are in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 27. And David said in his heart, okay, now let me stop there for a moment and ask you this question. Where does David say this? This is not a, this is, I'm not going to trick you ever. I want you to get it. Where is David, where is David speaking to himself? Who is doing the speaking? 
David is speaking to his own heart. So David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel so I shall escape out of his hand. Now, this is the saddest part of the story is in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, where David says something in his heart. Now, he may have never said it out loud. I don't know who he would have said it to. He may have never said it to anyone else. He may have never said it to God. He certainly wouldn't have prayed it. But David was informing himself. What we say to our heart has tremendous impact and power to begin to shape our thinking and our actions and actually our entire destiny, what we are supposed to accomplish and how we are supposed to accomplish it. What we tell our hearts impact us much more than we think it does. In fact, we may be the only one oblivious to the lies that we tell ourselves. And we start operating in that power. We start believing what we tell ourselves in our heart. And he says this, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Here's the second thing that happens. David forgets all of the promises of God. His paranoia, his cynicism, his fear, his frustration, all of the issues related to his day out the window. He knows that Samuel anointed him to be God's anointed. He knew the prophecies that had been given to him from generation, even generations past, that God had promised that his seat, his kingdom would not end. David knew all this stuff, and yet here he is in this moments of lack of perspective and lack of ability to believe in God's promises because of his own paranoia. He forgets God's promises. Of course Saul can't touch David because David will be the next king. But David couldn't remember that. That was a word of discouragement coming from a heart that was tired of trusting God. So in discouragement, David forgot his past deliverances. <laughs> David had been threatened before. But David had been threatened quickly and it was over. You know, when a lion comes out of hiding and goes to attack you, I mean, that's scary. That's over pretty quick. I mean, one way or the other. But this, day after day after day after day of thinking, what time do I walk down the hallway? When do I go out to the field? When do I eat my meal? When do I, how do I, who should I be around? Who can I trust? Who agrees with me? Who's on my side? Who's on Saul's side? It was day after day after day of fatigue. And it got the best of him. And his best idea was to retreat. Run away in secrecy and hide. He didn't have to think about it anymore. He said, he's decided to leave Israel and live among idol-worshiping Philistines. You, can you believe this? David, the author of most of the Psalms, the great worshiper of the Old Testament, says, I'd rather worship God in the midst of idolaters. I think they're my people now. If you ask David, David, have you given up hope? No, no. David, you trust the Lord? Yep. But David's actions did not back up by his words. His words were not backed up by his actions. In fact, God's future king of Israel 
said, there's nothing left for me in Israel. He said, Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel so I shall escape out of his hand. Listen to this. David thinks his escape from Saul will free him, not the hand of God. He sees the wrong remedy. David has now given up on trusting the Lord to protect him. David is now trusting. He gave up trusting the Lord instead of... I mean... Watch this. David left the land of promise because he refused to believe the promise. But that's what frustration and fear and conflict will do in a person's life over an extended period of time. God is at work, but David is convinced that he isn't. (laughs) Listen to this. He said, Saul will despair. Saul will give up. If David leaves the land, Saul will not despair if David forsakes the people of God and joins the ungodly. It's David who is in despair. It's David who is transferring how he feels over into everybody else's life. Saul wouldn't drive David away and David would have never gone if Saul had have. Can you imagine if Saul had said, you get out of my kingdom? David would have said, who in the world do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Listen, discouragement... And I I want you to hear me, and I know we're not all in the same place, but I feel like we can understand where this sentiment comes from. But discouragement and despair are more powerful enemies than Saul. What David was telling himself became more damaging than the real threat. So despair and discouragement is actually going to drive David David to do something that Saul could have never made David do. Let's look at verse 2. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Ashish, the king of Moak, king of the son of Moak, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Ashish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. By the way, that wasn't a good thing. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath. Saul didn't care anymore. So he sought him no more. Now, David's discouragement, I want you to notice here, David makes a decision that David should not have made. Can we agree on that? And all of a sudden, David brings 600 of his best friends into his bad decision. David is wrong, but his friends let him go. Worse, go with him. Validate him. David's discouraged and despairing heart did not, could not only affect him, but 600 men, not only 600 men, all their families and their kids and their livelihood. So David dwelt with Ashish at Gath, Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, you don't have to go back there now, but write that down, chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. David had already done this once before. I don't know what the issue between David and Ashish was, but there was a relationship there of some sort. But but David was already fearful. This was the second attempt. And when David went to King Ashish of Gath, which was just a region of the Philistines, he's, he's a king within a kingdom. 
so he goes and makes an alliance with him, but that doesn't work too well. We're not going to get into that part of the story, but David actually fakes that he is insane. He starts talking to himself crazy and making sure people are finding out that he's talking to himself and he lets spit just come out. His Bible says drool come out his mouth and into his beard so people would think he's crazy. And Nashish was like, hey, dude, you can't be trusted. You, you, gotta, you, gotta, get on, you gotta get on home. I don't really know why you're here anyway, but I don't really, I don't really take, take crazy people in. And so, uh, so David leaves, but David wanted to. But I want you to notice that David, even though he pretended to be a man, madman so he could escape, in his discouragement and despair, he's going to go down the exact same road that did not work before, but this time it's going to be different. Maybe he's more desperate this time than he was last time. I don't know what David is feeling, but I know this. We've already done this before. It didn't work last time, but I'm more desperate this time. You know what happens when your mind is not focused on faith? Despair. It's the only other option. And listen, we as the people of faith have an obligation, a responsibility to be the testimony to the world of what it looks like to experience frustration and despair and live at peace. We don't get to commiserate with the world who doesn't have hope. We don't grieve like the world or sorrow like the world that has no hope. We don't get to walk around in frustration and despair and discouragement and bad-mouthing and grumbling and complaining. We get to be people who are focused on God's sovereignty, on what God is doing and how God is doing it and what our part is to play. That's when we will find faith and favor. David's accomplished the goal of getting away from Saul and Saul's done. Saul's not chasing him anymore. Watch this. Saul's not chasing him anymore. David can go, oh, now I'm living with my enemies who are idol worshipers. This is the life. By the way, this, we know when this happened according to history. During this time, David wrote no psalms. There were no songs, psalms of praise. There was no psalms of accusation. These were years of silence for the hymnist. Verse 5. Then David said to Ashish, If I have found, found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Do you see this? David just called himself to the pagan king, your servant. So Ashish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. That is a long time to assimilate. David never really cared about finding favor in the eyes of the Philistines before. Can you imagine? David? You remember what David said to Goliath? No. Not this David. You remember how bold and how strong David was in this giant's face before he threw the stone and cut off his head and shook it to the Philistine army as they were tucking tail and running away? 
And here David is standing in front of the king and saying, if I have found favor, O king, as your servant, I'm not worthy to live inside where you live. Just give me some place out on the countryside and I'll take all my guys. Listen, it gets so much worse here, okay? Verse eight. So what this tells me is David is running away from Saul. Saul's no longer pursuing him, but David doesn't intend a short stay here. David wants a place to dwell, a place to be established. Look at verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, the flashlights, and the mosquitoites. I have been telling that joke forever and a day, and I love that joke. I probably, if I were to read that again, I'd probably say it again. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old as you go to Shur. Now just, just watch here. Even as far as the land of Egypt, wherever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but he took away sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels and the apparel and returned and came to Ashish. Now, the Hebrew word for raided comes from the verb to strip. What it means is, is to wipe clean, to take anything of value. Stripping dead people for loot. And since they're not dead, let's kill them first and then we'll take all their stuff. Oh, I know, we have King David up here. You know, that great guy who knew how to repent. This is what happens when you allow despair to take over. We do not despair. David attacked these villages, these encampments. He killed some of the men, stripped them for treasure, armor, robbed the people of the village. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this guy had, been, had received the blessing from God. He was going to be the king. He was fulfilling prophecy. He would produce the future Messiah. Incredible. This is no way for a man after God's own heart to live. This is what happens when you forget who's in control. And it starts by saying to your own heart. Your heart will begin to rule you. And before you believe the lies of the world that would say, follow your heart, what does your heart tell you? Right? Remember what Jeremiah said. Our heart is wicked. Our heart is evil. Our heart is paralyzing. Well, what about, Pastor, the God will give you the desires of your heart? Well, that's true, but what actually Psalm 37 says is, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. When He is your delight, the Lord will give you those desires. Now, David has it totally. I mean, there's an out here a little bit. When you look at the people that he is attacking... They are only the enemies of Israel. Right? This, this, these are not Israelite people. They're also sworn enemies. So when David goes out to plunder and to raid, he is at least raiding enemies of Israel. And I'm sure in some way he is telling himself, well, 
I'm not turned my back on my people and I've not turned my back on my God. You notice how compromise begins to work, right? I mean, there's bloody men laying in David's way and he's congratulating himself on not being that bad of a guy. Here's how I know that. It's because a time comes when David comes into Ashish and gives him all the bounty. The enemies of Israel, millions of dollars. And he says, where have you been? David said, well, down on the southern borders and some up this area and that area. These were right on the border of where Israel had encampments. David doesn't tell him exactly where he's gone. He tells him regions. So Ashish thinks that he is waging war against Israel. This guy's one of ours now. We can trust him. Now, when you move to chapter 28, you see a change in scene. This is where Saul has no idea what he's doing. Samuel has died. Saul can no longer ask for advice from God's prophet. And so Saul is left with nothing to go. The spirit has left him and now the prophet has left him. And so he consults a a witch, a medium. This is how bad things are in Israel. Well, the witch is surprised when she summons up dead Samuel from Hades and he says to them, why have you bothered me? And Samuel, Saul says, well, I just need to know what to do next. Samuel, I mean, you know I'm paraphrasing, right? So you need to read it. But Samuel pretty much says, it doesn't matter. You and your sons are dying on the battlefield tomorrow. What do you do when you know you got less than 24 hours to live? Well, Saul fainted in the floor. <laughs> He's fell out. Now I know tomorrow I'm going to die. What else matters? He already knew the Spirit of the Lord had left him. Fast forward to chapter 29. There are some battle lines drawn King of Gath, Ashish, goes into one of the princes of all of Philistia. And he says, How think we're getting ready to go to war against Israel? We need to make sure that all of our guys are ready. And Ashish says, Hey, I've got an ace in the hole. I've actually got some of the Israelites' best men. These are David's mighty men, 600 warriors strong. And they're on our side. And David, man, he is slaughtering people right and left. He is a great guy. And the prince said, are you out of your mind? That Hebrew is not going into battle with us. As soon as he sees some of the faces, he's not going to be able to kill them. He's, he's, going, to, he's going to turn. He'll be a traitor. Mark my word. As awesome as they are, they are not worth the risk. Tell that guy to go back home. I don't want him on the battle lines with us. So Ashish goes over to David. He said, David, I'm really sorry. You've proven your worth to me. Everyone's not convinced. So you need, to, you need to go back home. And David says, what have I done to deserve this unfair treatment? David was ready to go to war with God's people. So David goes back to Ziklag. That's the area that Asia should have given him, you remember? All of his mighty men, all of their families. When David walks into Ziklag, he notices something different. It was the burning houses that gave it away. And all of the men who was coming back from raiding and pillaging and plundering and preparing for war, 
they notice that no one is, a, is around in the settlement of Ziklag at all. They've all been taken. They've all been kidnapped, taken hostage. Every, every last person that lived there, no one is there. And the Bible says, well, let's just go ahead and read it. This is in uh, chapter 30, verse 1. Do you, remember, do you remember just in about 20 years, 18 to 20 years from now, David is going to see Bathsheba sleeping or sunbathing on the roof and he's going to lust after her and then he's going to actually sleep with her and then he's going to take, she's going to become pregnant. He's going to kill her husband, one of these men, by the way, so that he can cover up his sin. And you remember when, when Nathan, the prophet, gives David the words... And, and David says, what man are we talking about here? And Nathan points his finger in his face and says, you're the man. And David's like, oh. I mean, how do you get to a place like David is and not know it? How many of us are in a place right now and we're the last person we should be consulting about how strong and healthy and vibrant, how growing our faith is? We need to look at our actions not what we're telling ourselves, Because what we tell ourselves will lie to us every time. You will always give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You will always consider yourself first. That's the essence of selfishness. But not a person alive would say, yeah, I'm pretty selfish when it comes to making decisions. We would all say, no, that's not true. Look at the track record. Are we following by faith? Are we speaking life? Are our words full of grace? Are we living thriving? Are we making disciples? Are we taking back territory from our enemy? Or are we partnered up with the enemy? David is backslidden and David's the only one that doesn't know it. He's far from God and he's not aware. How can you tell? Here's, here's the way you can always tell where you are. is who is getting the glory out of my life. Who's getting the glory from my life? Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev, against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. And they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until there was no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What this means is, is that David allowed the truths of God to inform his heart rather than the truths in his mind informing his heart. 
Significant difference. This is a big turnaround in David's life. These men who were with David thick and thin, it's okay for us to mow down every other encampment. What had they done everywhere else they had been? Exactly what happened here. It was all right when they were doing it. It's not all right now. These were blind spots. When they were doing this, they had no problems. But that's the way it is in living in the world. Inconsistent living, justifications, excuses after excuse. And David's mighty men had now become David's hateful men. Now, they may have been justified, but this was a quick turn for David. Their great sorrow is pathetically described in verse 4. But this is the way it is with distress. Instead of weeping and mourning, they had to, their bitterness, their despair, their anger, all of those things turned into rage against one person. They didn't realize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Just like a lot of times for us. Listen, when I hear Christians grumbling and complaining about people, whether they're politicians or whether they're in charge of this or that or bosses or whoever it may be, that's not the way Christians respond to life. People are not our enemies. We have enemies. People aren't them. Or we don't believe in God's sovereignty one or the other. And yes, we may be justified in how we feel, but we need the word of God to inform our heart, not our minds informing our heart. We shouldn't be saying things to our heart. We should allow God to say things to our heart. That will change the way we act, the way we behave. The way we behave will change the way we feel eventually. Informing his own heart, had brought David to being completely alone. David's about 35 years old here, and he has no one. He didn't even have his wives. There was no one on his side. No one but, but God. And sometimes that's what it takes for us to get to the very end of ourself. I've got no home. I've got no wife. I've got no kids. I've got no friends. I've got no king. I've got nothing. What do I have What do I have? No one but God he served. And that's when he remembered. When you think selfishly, it's really easy to think about God second. But when you're broken, you remember. When you're broken, you can remember. There's so many things that bring us trouble today And we should be grieved by all of them. Race issues, sin issues, politics, healthcare, finance, COVID. And there's different ways that we've learned to cope. I've come up with just four quick ones. One is arrogance. That's when we live unsympathetic. That's when we know all the answers of what everybody else ought to be doing. We don't listen, we just talk. We know everything there is to know about everything there is to know. Arrogance. The second is avoidance. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and bide my time and somebody will solve this somewhere and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and move on. The third is ambivalence. Double-minded. And you know, you know, some of us are this way. When I'm with this crowd, I have this opinion. When I'm with this crowd, I have this opinion. And I'm going to talk about both sides of my mouth and make sure that nobody knows how I feel about anything. At the least, we 
wrestle with right and wrong when we're, when we're alone, who hasn't had to adjust, accommodate, reframe, change plans, argue, debate, have fear or anger, exasperation or fatigue, just wear you out sometimes. Who, who in here has not experienced any of that this year? But by the way, since that's true of all of us, I promise you that's true of all of them. We're tempted to inform our hearts. We may do this and not know it. We may be far from God's word and not know it because we've told ourselves something that's not true. Listen, these days we cannot. The easiest temptation there is is to inform yourself of something. We cannot be guilty of telling our own heart anything. Because then we can be far from the Lord and not know it. Well, that's the lesson for today. That's the lesson for the days that we live in. We must not encourage ourselves. We must encourage ourselves in the Lord our God. Not in man, not in articles, not in posts, not in news reports, not in vaccine hopes, not in politicians, not in stimulus payouts. These things, they're going to come and go. Sometimes you'll agree with them and sometimes you won't. And so what happens? We have this roller coaster ride of emotions because we keep informing our hearts because of what we're receiving into ourselves. And then we tell our hearts something and that's what we feel. We must allow the Lord to inform our hearts. His word, it is true, it is honorable, it is just, it is pure, it is lovely, it is commendable, it is praiseworthy, it's excellent. And we must Think about these things. That brings me to the fourth way to respond, and that is to be aware. Instead of thinking what is happening, we say to ourselves, what is God doing and how can I partner with Him? Instead of saying, how can I hold on to what I have, we can say, what can I do in this moment to love God and how to love people? What are my opportunities right now to help people find and follow Jesus not necessarily some action or some, you know, big illustrious act to perform, but in this conversation with this person that I live by or this person that I live with or this person that I work with, how can I engage in this moment, take the faith that God has been informing me, how can I allow that to pass through me and encourage rather than commiserate? That's what the world needs from us right now is they need somebody to come along that can channel the very word of God, the very encouragement and the strengthening of the Lord. How can we do it when we are not strengthened in the Lord our God? We have nothing to give away except our opinions. David encouraged himself in God and not in man. David's friends were embittered. His family was taken. His king was trying to kill him. His alliance had broken. He was broken. Listen, David was dealing with nationality, race, politics, sin, health care, finance. But later, here's what David's going to say in Psalm 27. He writes this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Oh, there's something else going on here too, by the way. It's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 19. 
Well, I'll just read 19. And some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they did not help him, for the Lord of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying he made effect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. Remember, that's the same story, different passage of Scripture, same story. Something that 1 Samuel chapter 30 doesn't mention, or 29 doesn't mention, and that is that there were brothers from the tribe of Manasseh who came to David's aid and said, we'll we'll help you take Israel. But they never got the chance to fight. David never mentions that in 1 Samuel chapter 29. They're not even mentioned. This is a significant game changer for David, but they do not make a difference. There is no mention of this being encouragement to David. Now David's going to settle for the only thing that he knows will work, and that is to encourage himself in the Lord his God. And here's what he does in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, this is the high priest who had been traveling with David, by the way, is the son of Ahimelech. He said, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. Now this just wasn't any ephod. The ephod is what the priests would wear when they would make the sacrifice. It would keep the blood of the slaughtered animals off their regular clothes. Inside of the Uh, There were two pockets inside the ephod of the high priest. This made it different from any other ephod. And inside there were two stones. It was called the Urim and the Thummim. These stones were very, very, you can see them in many, many passages of Scripture, but they would be consulted when anyone wanted to know what God's will was in a moment. They would take these two stones, and honestly, we have no idea how they worked, but we know that they did. But the Lord himself, the sovereignty over these stones, would tell God's people how to live, how to do, how to, make, how to decide. Now remember, before you get too mystical, that we, I, I suspect, that if we had access to the Urim and Thummim now, they wouldn't move. Because we have the Holy Spirit, that which David and Bithar did not have. And so now that we have the Holy Spirit, we know God's word. We know God's will. We know God's ways. We don't need to consult stones. But God spoke often through these. So when David asks the high priest to bring him the ephod, what he's asking is for the high priest to consult God's word and God's will. What does God want? Let's give our actions to the Lord. Finally, David has woken up. What does he do? He begins to pray. And he asks the counsel of God's people. And he asks the counsel of God's word and God's will. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord. He said, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. See what David did? David prayed, seeking God Seeking God's plan, that's the first step in encouraging yourself. Psalm 34, 4, David will write, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me and he freed me from all of my fears. Listen, don't be overwhelmed by the troubles that you're going through. We all don't have the same troubles. We all don't have the same problems. We don't even have the same disappointments or the same fatigue or the same weakness or weariness. But we do all have the same solution. To whatever level you are, the Lord is sovereign. He is control. Encourage, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Stop informing your heart. 
Let the Lord inform your heart and your heart will tell you everything you need to know when he is your delight. This is a day for the church of Jesus Christ to shine more brightly than it has ever shown before. Because in my opinion, the world is as dark as it's ever been. But when we engage like David, how in this world is David going to make a difference for the kingdom of God? David won't even establish the kingdom of God this way. We need a perspective shift. When you think about the situations that are going on in the world, when you see the situation and then beyond that, you can say, well, but God is sovereign. That's when you see, you see first your issue. There's very little peace that comes from knowing that God is at work when your first focus is the issue. But when your first focus is on God and behind him, that's where you see the issues of the world. It is so much easier to be at peace. Because then you can know that the God who is right here is actually orchestrating and in charge of everything else you see. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. In fact, David himself is going to say later in his life, I once was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Well, right here he feels forsaken, but he's not. He's never seen the righteous forsaken or God's people begging bread. We need a perspective change. See, it's God's perspective brings peace in our life. When we have God's point of view, we have peace. Which brings me to the very end. And that's Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul tells this to the church at Colossae. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, What he is saying is that we are all together called to live in that peace together. We are called to live at peace, to live at unity and peace. So let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which you are also called in one body and be thankful. This is the responsibility of God's people in these days. Nothing else matters. When you have confusion and frustration and fear and annoyance and fatigue and disappointment and grief and heartache and you wonder if you're next or someone you love is next or how am I going to navigate this or that and what's next year going to look like and all of this. And we, listen, we have a lot of hopes. I think a lot of people had a lot of hopes that when the clock struck 12, all of our problems go back in the box. It does not work that way. These are false hopes. We tell ourselves that. We feel that way temporarily and then we realize Just come and go. We have paralysis by analysis today, whirling in our head. And I'm telling you, you're going to be tempted, and I know you already have done this. I know I have. You're going to be tempted to say to your heart, but that saying is from the flesh. And it'll corrupt you. And it'll take you to a place that you will not recognize and you will not admit that you're there, but you'll be further and further and further away from the peace of God. And when you're not at peace with him, you can't, you can't give his peace away. So this word, I want to bring this to your attention. It's, a, it's a, an interesting word, in my opinion. Uh, this word rule in our hearts. It's the word brabua, which simply means, uh, well, when Paul wrote this word in Greek, it actually means, let it be your umpire. 
Let it be your referee. Let the peace of God be your referee when it comes to your emotions. But here, listen, let it rule you. So we're talking about sovereign, absolute rule. But Paul starts out by saying, let it. Give it permission. Give the peace of God the permission to rule your hearts. How do I have peace of God? I've got to change my perspective to be that of God's. I've got to consult Him. And when you begin to consult the Lord and ask Him, Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me partner with you? How would you like me for to engage in this conversation? And you don't need to shake stones and roll them in order to know that. There's no magic eight ball. You're guided by the very Word of God, the very Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. I know it is a pretty simple way to get here, but I think David teaches us a very, very valuable lesson about how a man can get so far away and not even know it. And it's possible I think for many of us to be a lot further away than we think. Ask yourself, are you at peace? How do you know if you're at peace? Here's how you know. Everywhere you go, you leave peace. So ask yourself, am I leaving peace or am I leaving opinions? Am I leaving peace or am I leaving frustrations? Am I frustrated? Am I aggravated? Am I struggling? Am I weak? Am I frail? Am I fragile? Am I weary? How do I encourage myself in the Lord? Well, the first step is to recognize that the Lord is sovereign over everything. Gain His perspective. Begin to see Him first and your problems second. And all of these things, you'll have opportunities to help people find and follow Jesus. But it begins in knowing what does God's Word say to me. So I want to encourage you. Make sure that you're in the Word this year. It's never been more important for us to be in the Word of God and be informed by the Word of God than it is right now. I'm telling you, you will still have human emotions. You will still have paranoia and anxiety and worry and all of those things. But you get to let the peace of God referee and umpire how you're going to respond. Make sure that you're spending time going through the Connect 20 with your home. Practice in your home having gospel conversations, faith conversations. Talk to your spouses about what God's doing in your life and what you're hearing from His Word. It might be an encouragement to them because they might be headed back to Ziklag right now. Your family needs to be influential for the kingdom's sake and other families. Make sure you're reading along with us as a church as we go through the scriptures together this year, reading through the Bible. And if you have any questions about how to start there, just just ask. That's what we want to do. We want to help you, equip you to do the work of the ministry. And that ministry does not just take place here. It takes place when you're going from house to house and breaking bread together and having favor with everyone we come into contact with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. As we do, I want to ask you if you would to stand with me. And I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you, are you you able, do do you know the areas of your life that you're tempted to inform your own hearts? 
Because I'm telling you, there's some, some of the time, some of the issues in life, you're going to like your advice a whole lot more than you like God's. And it's going to be hard. That's where faith comes in to believe God rather than what you want to do to do what he wants. Are you aware of those areas in your life? Do you spend time asking the Lord, Lord, today, seal my heart up so that I can only think for your kingdom and not my own? When you get ready to go into this conversation, do you ask, Lord, give me ears that are attentive so that I can know how to speak peace into this situation? Lord, help me diffuse the situation instead of keeping it agitated. Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to shine brightly, to be an extension of his kingdom and to help people find and follow Jesus. So during these last couple of minutes, I want to ask you, with your heads bowed, I want you just to to say, Lord, begin to teach my heart. Show my heart. May I encourage myself in you. Show me those areas in my life that I'm resistant to give over to you, those areas in my life where I'm not at peace, those areas in my life where I don't, I mean, I know you're sovereign, but I really don't like your control in these areas. Can you pray that just for a moment? Just ask the Lord to strengthen you and encourage you in him. He is sovereign. He has a plan and he is working that plan. Just like he was in David. Don't hightail it and run away from an enemy that you've already got victory over. Why would we do that? Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to learn from David's lesson. A lesson that he hasn't fully learned yet. But I pray that you would help us, Lord, to model that. That we as men and women after your own heart, that we wouldn't spurn our opportunities today. Thank you, Lord, that you still speak, you still love, you still control, and you're still willing to partner with us. So, Lord, have your way with us. And as we, as human beings, Lord, we live in a day where the most popular thing and the easiest thing is to just say to ourselves and then to act. I pray that we would pause, we would hear your word, your plan, your spirit, and be at peace and produce peace. And the peace of God will rule our hearts. It'll guide our thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.